Hello and greetings. We're so glad that you joined us and so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. The story of Christianity centers on the gospel of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he lived, he died, he was raised in power on the third day, that he ascended to heaven and was made Lord of all and that one day soon he will return. As we can see in Acts 2, 14-41, 17-24-31, this is the gospel which is God's power to salvation, in Romans 1, and verse 16. But how do we come to know the gospel? Jesus himself did not write anything down. Uh, it is, in fact, his witnesses, his apostles, that he sent out. Uh, those who watched him, participated in his ministry, and he commissioned them to tell others about his life, death, and resurrection of the whole world in Matthew 10, 1 through 4, 18, 18, in Luke 24, 44 through 49, and Acts 1, 1 through 8. And yet there's also at least two other people who are mentioned as apostles, commissioned by the Lord to preach the gospel among the nations. Barnabas, the son of encouragement in Acts 4, 36 and 37, called an apostle in Acts 14, 14, and Saul of Tarsus, also called Paul, of whom we learn much in Acts chapter 9 through 28 and in the letters of Romans through Philemon. Maybe they heard Jesus teach and preach in life. We know that Paul saw him in the resurrection. In Acts chapter 9, Acts 22, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And so let us spend some time today considering this Saul of Tarsus, who's also called Paul, from Acts 9 through 28, Romans through Philemon. He's a man who violently opposed the Jesus movement, but he was granted appearance of Jesus in the resurrection, and he was a man who then devoted his life to the proclamation of the gospel and to work out a coherent theology of how God worked through Christ. So what do we know about Saul? Well, through his own writings and Luke's report of his preaching and interactions with others, we actually have an embarrassing wealth of information about Saul of Tarsus. He's most likely a younger contemporary of Jesus. In Acts 7, in verse 58, when Stephen is being stoned, uh, Luke says that they laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. So maybe he's born around the year 5 of our era, so when Jesus is being uh, crucified, he's 25, 26, 27, you know, a younger man, or something of that sort. Um, one of the enduring questions about Saul is how much would he have known about Jesus before he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? If he was being taught by Gamaliel and in Jerusalem, were there times that he had heard Jesus teach? Uh, had he, he at least probably heard a report about Jesus in his life? Uh, regardless, we certainly know that at the time he was not impressed. He was certainly not a believer in Jesus during Jesus' life and ministry. We know that he is Jewish by birth and of the tribe of Benjamin. He mentions this very often, particularly Philippians 3, 4 through 6, among other places. Uh, he's a Roman, he's born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which is a place uh, of high prominence. And he is a Roman citizen by birth in Acts 21, 39, and Acts 22 and verse 28. These facts are made known. He's named Saul, no doubt after the royal ancestor, because he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And he went by the Latin name Paulus, meaning humble or small. Saul's name from 1 Samuel 9, and Paul, we start seeing in Acts 13 and verse 9. 
Um, maybe there's a deliberate vocation of humility in there, which is interesting considering how little the Greeks esteemed humility. It also just might be that they're very similar sounding names. So Saul, Paul was easy for him to get around. It's something we see frequently in, in the Gospels where people have multiple names depending on the context. Luke fairly consistently will call him Saul of Tarsus before Acts 13.9 and then afterward call him Paul. So there is a consistency there that we will try to uh, observe ourselves. In Acts 22 and verse 3, Paul identifies that he was taught by Gamaliel, a very prominent rabbi among the Jews, and that he was a Pharisee in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, among other places. He mentions that he is zealous for the traditions of his ancestors and for a strict adherence to the law of Moses, and that this zeal is what led him to persecute those who were of the sect of the Nazarenes in Acts 22.3, Galatians 1.13 and 14, and again in Philippians 3. In terms of family, we know that Paul had a sister and a nephew in Acts 23.16. He may never have married, but we definitely know for certain that as an apostle, he was unmarried, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. And there is no record of him having any children. In Acts 18 and verse 3, we're told that he is by trade a tent maker. And there were times, like in Corinth, where he would supplement whatever he was being receiving from churches uh, by working as a tent maker. And by common confession, around the year 67, he is executed by Nero. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, uh, it seems that Paul is quite aware that he is about to pass on. Uh, and he, as we were going to see later, uh, witnesses testify that such is what happened to him. And so it's very interesting to note that of Saul stands in contrast to the rest of the apostles. The rest of them came from places of deep humility, uh, poverty, and not among their religious elite. Where Saul comes from privilege. He comes from a place of social prestige, being a Roman citizen, being sufficiently wealthy to be able to devote themselves to the study of the law under Gamaliel, getting deep study in the law, and also a passing study, at least in philosophy and rhetoric. We're told in 2 Corinthians 10.10, he says that he was accused of being weak bodily, and that his speaking skills were of little account. Um, But he was admittedly weighty and strong in how he wrote. And since this isn't a polemic text uh, with people who are opposing uh, Saul, we have every reason to believe that is likely the way that he was. He was, or at least cultivated, the image of appearing very humble and lowly in the presence of others. But he wrote mightily and powerfully, as he testifies in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. But indeed, even in person, he proved powerful in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. And being so bold as to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. We can see in his preaching and teaching that he is very proficient in his understanding of the law and the practice of Judaism among the Pharisees and his fellow Jewish people of Second Temple Judaism. He's very skilled in rhetoric and in how it argues, and he is at least acquainted with the basics of Greek philosophy. It's important to note that while Saul of Tarsus, as we're going to see, is going to be converted to some degree and will become Paul, he doesn't stop being who he is. Instead, he will use all that he has been given to serve Christ and the gospel. The story of Saul is told throughout the the book of Acts and from what we can piece together in many of the letters which Paul wrote. We are introduced to Saul of Tarsus, as mentioned, in Acts 7.58, where he begins persecuting the church. All those who stone Stephen leave their cloaks at his feet, their outer garment as they uh, put forth effort in throwing the stones. In Acts 22 and verse 20, Paul says that he uh, demonstrates his approval of their actions by having that happen. Afterward, 
he laid waste to the church in Acts 8 and verse 3. Luke says that he entered house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In fact, uh, he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if any, uh, he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem in Acts 9, 1 and 2. In fact, he would later characterize himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor beyond measure, and one who did so unto death. That he was injurious, voting to send Christians to die in Acts 22, 4, 26, 10-11, Galatians 1, 13, and 1 Timothy 1, 13. But in Acts 23 and verse 1, he says that he has lived his life with a clean conscience to that day, which says that he was completely convicted that he was doing the right thing. Now, there are three times that we are told the story of Jesus' appearance to Saul on the road to Damascus. Luke provides a narrative report of it in Acts 9, 3 through 25, and then Paul will twice recount the event himself in Acts 22, in front of the crowd in Jerusalem, and Acts 26, before King Agrippa. As he's going to Damascus, Saul and his companions see a bright light and hear powerful sounds, but it's only Saul who sees a figure of the risen Lord and hears his voice. The voice asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard to kick against the goats. And he's told to go to Damascus and will be told what to do. And he is told that he is going to be sent to his own people and to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance in Christ. He's blinded by the experience, and he's led into Damascus. He fasts in prayer for three days. A servant of Jesus there, Ananias, is sent to him. And he's baptized by Ananias. He receives his sight back, and he also receives the Holy Spirit. He then goes in and confounds everyone by proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogues. He said, isn't this the guy who came to take all these people away? What is he doing? In fact, plots were made against him, as he will recount himself in 2 Corinthians 11, 32, and 33. He had to leave Damascus in a basket through the window in a city hall, through a city wall. Very uh, humiliating experience. It's very important to note about this conversion experience, is that in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, and 15, 8 through 10, Paul will point out, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's going through all of the people who saw uh, the Lord in the resurrection. Um, Peter, and up to 500 at one time, and all these other guys. He says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, the one ectromity, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. The atromity normally is for an abortive birth or an abortion, but here it means one untimely born, born too late. And he's recognizing that he did not see the Lord in the resurrection at the same time everybody else saw the Lord in the resurrection, but he still affirms that he saw the Lord in the resurrection. That is the great, powerful testimony of being an apostle. And so Paul insists that that is legitimate. And from all accounts, it was accepted as legitimate. And telling his story in Galatians 1, 15 through 18, Paul will strenuously emphasize, I did not confer with flesh and blood, I did not get this from people, I received it by revelation. Uh, that Jesus revealed the message of the gospel to him specifically. 
In that account, he said he went to Arabia, then back for Dam- to Damascus for three years. And the best way we can make sense of that in terms of Acts 9 is that this whole time that Paul is told to be in Damascus is includes his time in Arabia and back to Damascus. And this is the way that Saul of Tarsus is converted. In Acts 9, 11, and 12, we're told some of the activities that Saul has in preaching and teaching. That he leaves Damascus and wants to join the disciples in Jerusalem. They stay away. They're afraid of it. But Barnabas brings him in and testifies to his conversion that he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. And then he is welcome. He goes in and out among the Christians. He proclaims Jesus as a Christ in the synagogues. There's a threat made against his life. And so he's sent off to Caesarea and off to back to Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. This, according to his own words, would may have taken 15 days and involved him visiting Peter and James, the Lord's brother, if this is the same event as he talks about in Galatians 1, 18-19. Saul spent some time in Tarsus and Cilicia, and he preaches the gospel there, Galatians 1, 21-24. Barnabas has seen the grace of God in Jews and Gentiles coming together to serve Christ in Antioch of Syria in Acts 11, and so he goes to find Saul in Tarsus, brings him to Antioch, and they spend a year there, gathering with the church and teaching many people. He was then commissioned with Barnabas to bring the relief that the Antiochian Christians wanted to give to the Christians in Jerusalem with the impending famine coming up, and he fulfilled that commission. And he brought back with him John called Mark. Um, maybe this is the event where he spends 15 days visiting Peter and James the Lord's brother, Galatians 1, 18-19. Depends where you put that particular event. Uh, it could be one of these different time periods. Uh, it's not exactly clear, uh, but it's also in Acts 11, 27-30, in chapter 12, verse 25. And this def- we know the year that this happened in 44, because uh, the give- giving of the, the relief is um, a story that has in between it the death of Herod Agrippa I, of which we, are, we know happened in the year 44. And this is the first firm date that we have regarding Saul. He could have been converted within a couple years, five or six years, we don't know. But there's, it's likely that by 44 he's already been a Christian for a few years. Um, and been active in doing all of this work. And so, at this point he's active in teaching and preaching, and he has some reputation in the churches. Now, from Acts chapter 13 on, Paul, uh, Luke's primary focus is Paul's preaching missions, uh, what we call the missionary journeys, um, throughout the Mediterranean world. We're told about the first journey in Acts 13 and 14, that uh, Barnabas and Saul are separated out by the Holy Spirit in Antioch to the work God has called them to do. This is their commissioning as apostles, or now they're being sent by Jesus through the Spirit, to go and proclaim the gospel. They begin in Cyprus with John Mark, and they preach in Salamis, they reach Paphos, they overcome the false prophet Bar-Jesus Elymas, in fact, he's blinded for a time uh, through the words that bring, brought down by Paul, and proconsul Sergius Paulus is converted. From here on out, he is now Paul, no longer Saul. They go, Barnabas and Paul go on to what we call southern Turkey today, John Mark goes back to Jerusalem, uh, Barnabas and Paul make it up to Antioch of Pisidia, and in Acts 13, Paul, Luke records Paul's sermon about Jesus as the fulfillment of the hope of David, uh, the involvement of John the Baptist, the prophets, how Jesus is raised from the dead, and that he is able to justify from all that which you cannot be justified under the law, which will be major themes in his work later. 
Uh, he, uh, many want to hear the, that message until the Gentiles arrived. When the Gentiles heard the word gad- gladly, the Jews got jealous and persecution was stirred up. And that would become the story in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby as well as they preached there in, in the area we call Galatia. And Jews and Greeks believe, and Jews will continue to persecute them, even to the point of stoning Paul, thinking he's dead. He's not dead, he gets up, uh, he recovers, and goes to the next town in Lystra. After healing somebody, they think he's Hermes, because he's the messenger, and that Barnabas is Zeus, and they try to offer sacrifice to him in chapter 14. And he has to strongly resist and discourage them from doing so, and barely got away with it before they were going to actually sacrifice animals to him as a god. When they've done that, they go through all the cities where they had preached, encouraged and strengthened the churches, appointed elders in every city, commended them to the Lord, as it is through tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God. And uh, that's an important trend that we're going to see throughout. And then they stay in Antioch for some time at the end of chapter 14. Now in chapter 15, we were introduced to the controversy that is going to shape so much of what's going to happen in Paul's ministry. That while they're in Antioch, some uh, Jewish Christians come down from Jerusalem. They start saying, unless you are circumcised and follow the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we're told in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. They had a big argument. And that led to them being sent down to Jerusalem to decide the matter. When they go to the Jerusalem conference, one of the things that happens is that Barnabas and Paul testify to what God has done among the Gentiles. This, along with Simon Peter's original appeal and James, the brother of the Lord's encouragement as well, leads to the decision through the Holy Spirit that no, that the Gentiles do not have to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved, that God has accepted Gentiles as Gentiles. Both Barnabas and Paul are commended as men who have uh, risked their lives for the gospel, and they are part of those who go and to provide the message of the letter to Antioch and to other places. And that brings us to Acts 15 and verse 26. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, when they're in Antioch, stay there for a while. And after a while, Paul, after many days, Paul tells Barnabas, hey, we should go and see how everybody's doing in Galatia. And there's a strong disagreement, because Barnabas wants to bring John Mark, and Paul just doesn't really trust John Mark. They, he abandoned him before, and especially when you're going on a mission, you, you can understand why Paul would be hesitant to take him. But it was strong enough disagreement that the, they're separating of the ways, and Barnabas takes John Mark and goes off to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, also called Silvanus, who had come from Jerusalem after the conference, and they head back to the churches in Galatia. In Acts 16, we're told that in Lystra, Paul took Timothy. Timothy was seen as an up-and-coming disciple who may have been useful in ministry, had had him circumcised, because everybody knew his father was a Greek, even though his mother was Jewish. And as he's going through the churches in Galatia, it mentions he's bringing the letter and the information provided within it from the apostles. Paul then wants to continue in the, the work, that not just to content the staying in these towns in southern Galatia, he wants to press on. But the Holy Spirit hinders him from preaching in Asia and in parts further into what we call Turkey today. So then he's, he sees a vision when he's in Troas, where it seems that Luke joins him, of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And so he, he discerns from that that he's supposed to go to Greece. And so he goes to Philippi and then Thessalonica and Berea. Then they preach first to the Jews where they can find them, either at a river gathering 
or at the synagogue, when the Jews don't want to hear anymore, then he goes to preach to the Greeks. And throughout, the Jews persecute him. In fact, the Jews of Philippi keep chasing him as he goes to different cities. In chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, having been escorted there, waiting for news from Timothy and for Timothy to come back to him and Silas. And he's provoked by the idolatry there. And he starts reasoning in the marketplace with the Epicureans and Stoics and others regarding Jesus and the resurrection. They think that these are both gods. And he's brought to Areopagus, Mars Hill, where he provides his famous uh, lesson there in Acts 17, verses 22 through 31, about the altar to the unknown God, that what you serve in ignorance I now proclaim to you, uh, that God has made us to seek after him, and that he is not far from us, but in him we live and move and have our being, that we are his offspring. That's both quotations from Aratus and Epimenes of Crete. And that we should not imagine that God is some image that is made by the fashion of hands, but that, in fact, uh, God has overlooked the ignorance of the past and calls all men to repent, and he has provided assurance of the day of judgment because he raised his son from the dead. The resurrection led many to mock, many wanted to hear more about it. Some did believe. And so that is Paul's great encounter with the cosmopolitan's heart, intellectual heart of the Greco-Roman world there in Athens. We're told then in chapter 18 that Paul will spend a year and a half in Athens, in Corinth, excuse me. He spent some time making tents. He preached to Jews and to Greeks. Jesus told me there's a lot of his people in that city. And so Paul worked strongly there. Um, he's brought up before Gallio on charges of causing all kinds of consternation. Gallio will not hear it. This provides us another time frame because Gallio is a brother of the famous Roman philosopher Seneca and we know that he was a, a governor of Corinth and that he died suddenly in the year around 53. So Corinth time for Paul if he went before Gallio would have been around the year 51-52. Um, he then goes through Ephesus um, but he vows to return to Ephesus as he's returning to Antioch and technically ending what we normally call the second journey in Acts 18 and verse 21. It's worth mentioning that First and Second Thessalonians are most likely the first letters written by Paul, and they're written while in Corinth. Uh, definitely First Thessalonians, probably Second Thessalonians as well. Uh, it's written right after Paul. Uh, he gets a report from Timothy about how... in they're standing firm despite the choppy beginning and the persecutions they had experienced. He instructs them more about what's going to happen to them in the day of judgment resurrection. That seems to have been a point of 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 self concern that the those who had died would not participate in the resurrection. And he assures them that actually the dead in Christ will rise first. And uh, he warns them about the things that must take place first. And perhaps there are some that were so looking forward to the end of time that they had quit their jobs and become busybodies, and he instructs those people, no, you need to stay working. You need to keep living. Recognize you should come back any time, uh, but to continue to live your life and to live peaceably in the process to waiting while we wait for the consummation of all things. Um, depending on the view of Galatians, and the view of Galatians I'm taking here is that it's later than, than many would imagine, uh, it's possible that Paul has his confrontation with Peter while he's in Antioch in Acts 18 and verse 22. It's also possible he had it back when he was still there in chapter 15. I think that there are a lot of reasons uh, based in the letter of Galatians and in the ministry of Peter that uh, chapter 18, so having this encounter around the year 52-53 uh, has some merit to it. 
then we see the beginning of the third missionary journey, so to speak, in chapter 19 through chapter 21. And most of that journey focuses on Ephesus. Now, we had said that the Holy Spirit hindered him from ministering in that area beforehand, but now the time has come. And he preached for two years there, we're told, in Ephesus, that all Asia heard the word of the Lord. And the only reason that he departed was because there was a riot, that uh, silversmiths were losing out because so many were no longer following Artemis. And that uh, was the ultimate catalyst for Paul to depart. This time period is probably around the years 53 to 55, mostly based on the evidence that is coming further. While he is in Ephesus, Paul most likely definitely writes 1 Corinthians and very likely 2 Corinthians as well. And it would seem, from 2 Corinthians especially, that at some point while he's in Ephesus for those two years, he crossed over to visit the church in Corinth for a little bit. He's writing with great concern about various forms of immorality present in that church. He argues powerfully for the resurrection. He resists these Judaizing super-apostles that are in their midst by 2 Corinthians. He brags in his weaknesses in these letters. Now in Galatians, some people think Galatians is his first letter, written even before the Jerusalem Conference. Others place it right after the Jerusalem uh, uh, Conference. Uh, I suggest, based on thematic and literary associations, that there's a lot of parallels in Galatians with 2 Corinthians and Romans, that he would wrote it in Ephesus while he was in Ephesus or soon afterward. That he heard that even despite all the things he had taught, and even despite the letter, that now all of a sudden these guys come down from Jerusalem, these Judaizers, and the Galatians are tempted to no longer uh, accept the gospel they had heard, but to uh, be circumcised and to submit themselves to the law of Moses. And in Galatians, Paul concisely but very powerfully argues about justification by faith and not by works of the law, that the law actually brought a curse, and that if you turn back to the law, you would actually be falling from grace. After being in Ephesus, we're told in chapter 20 that Paul goes to Macedonia and Achaia, and he strengthens the Christians there, and he's also taking up his collection for the saints in Judea. We don't necessarily always get that from Acts 20. We also see that from Romans and other, and from the letters that he wrote in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, but Romans is written while he's in Corinth at this point. Uh, he, and he's writing really to prepare for a visit. He, this is an interesting situation. Normally he's been working with churches that he's helped to found, but he has this great desire to go preach in Rome, and he knows there's already uh, Christians there. And he presents in Romans his most coherent and expansive theology, an explanation of how everyone is lost in sin, that God has provided the means of salvation through Jesus, that we can receive justification by faith, not works of the law, that God is just and able to redeem the Gentiles while seeing part of Israel cut off. And it's a very powerful message, and you can never summarize Romans in a way that does justice to everything, but that's the primary gist of what's going on there. He then, after departing from Thessalonica and from the area of Macedonia again, so he goes down Macedonia, down into Achaia, and then back to Macedonia, and he's going and sailing along the coast of modern-day Turkey, western Turkey. He doesn't want to stick, stay in Ephesus because he doesn't want to get bogged down, and so he sends for the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. And he gives a, a powerful message about he's not going to see them again. He commends them to take care of the flock that God has made them over. The Holy Spirit has made them overseers over, purchased by the blood of Jesus. He sees that even among themselves there were going to be uh, wolves in sheep clothing coming in and will not spare the flock. But tries to ground them in the truth. And from that we get the only statement from Jesus, from Paul, that we don't hear from anybody else. 
this idea in Acts 20 and verse 35 that it is better to give, more blessed to give than to receive. And from there, Paul goes and sails along the coast to Cyprus, down to Cyprus, down to Syria, to Tyre and Phoenicia, and he gets to Caesarea, spends time with Philip the Evangelist, and as he's going down through these towns, there's these messages everybody's giving him that danger awaits him in Jerusalem. But he goes to Jerusalem anyway, and he is received by the brethren. James, the brother of the Lord, sees him and says, we're so glad you're here. Look, they've all heard that you've been saying... you." that people don't have to follow the traditions of Moses. They're very zealous for the traditions of Moses. we got some guys on your vow. Why don't you go with them? And then they know that you're totally cool with observing customs of the law. And Paul does it. A lot of controversy about Acts 21, 17 through 26, whether Paul sins or not. Uh, it, there's no indication that he sins. Uh, it's very important to note that only in Romans 7, 1 through 4, is there any indication that there is a that, that a Jewish believer is totally freed from obligations of the law. And even then, while the temple is standing, the, the, the Lord seems to have had patience with his people. Uh, the difficulty in, in the fact is not Paul, it's the fact that the Jews in Asia had seen him with Trophimus the Ephesian. Uh, but uh, then they saw him in the temple. Paul in the temple, and they assumed that he had brought Trophimus with him. And that, that was just going too far. He had, you know, already tried to cause all kinds of problems preaching Jesus, and now he's defiling the temple by bringing in a Gentile. And so even though it's slanderous and a false accusation, they stir up everybody, there's a riot, they'd almost kill him if it weren't for the fact that Romans came in to save him in chapter 21. And uh, he then wants to speak to the people. He's granted to speak to the people. And in chapter 22, he testifies to uh, how he heard the message of Jesus and that he was sent to the Gentiles, uh, that they wanted to kill him again. So they brought him in to examine him by beating. He points out he's a Roman citizen. They're afraid and don't beat him. And so in chapter 23, he's brought before the council. So maybe they could find out what, what this guy's doing in front of the Sanhedrin. He sees who's in the Sanhedrin and cries out, I am on, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead, which causes a tumult in the Sanhedrin, since you have Pharisees and Sadducees both, and they start arguing among themselves, and then some Pharisees wonder, maybe an angel has talked to this guy. There's all of this consternation. Um, the Romans are trying to figure out what's going on, but Paul is assured by Jesus that he will testify to Jesus in Rome, as he has testified in Jerusalem. There's a plot to kill Paul, made by some Jews who want to kill Paul, and that's why he's going to be summoned. Actually, Paul's nephew finds out about it, is, tells that to the guard, and all of a sudden, Paul, under very heavy Roman guard, is brought from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He's sent to Felix the governor, and Felix, in 24, hears his case, has heard some things about the... The, the way, uh, doesn't adjudicate the case, though. Instead, keeps Paul in prison, really hoping for a bribe. Paul doesn't give him a bribe. But every so often, Felix and his wife, Jewish wife, Drusilla, bring him up, and Paul and him would reason with them about uh, re righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. This, of course, for Felix says, go away for the present. When I have an opportunity, I will summon you. That never happens. Uh, two years later, Felix was succeeded by Festus, and do, why do a Jews a favor? He left Paul in prison. And we know that that time period is between the years 57 and 59. One of Festus's first things, because the Jews immediately make the accusation against Paul again when Festus comes. Uh, in fact, Herod Agrippa I is coming as well. And so uh, Festus asks if Paul wants to go to Jerusalem to be on trial. And Paul says, I'm on trial where I'm supposed to be. I appeal to Caesar. 
And so we then hear in chapter 26, Paul standing up and speaking uh, his story before Agrippa. It's very important to see the story that he tells Agrippa. And how Paul sees himself based upon the explicit commission of the Lord as going to permit Chigasso to, to, the, to the Gentiles. That to this day, in verse 22, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ would suffer, and, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to Gentiles. And so Paul here is kind of tipping his hat to the way he looks at things. That he all, all the things that he had been promised, he finds fulfilled in Jesus, and that it is a fulfillment of what is written. And Agrippa then tells Festus, if this man had not appealed to Caesar, he would have gone free. But because he appealed to Caesar, he is going to be sent off to Rome. But before we talk about that, it would seem that Colossians and Philemon are written while Paul is in Caesarea. Uh, we, we know this because Paul is in Rome around 60-61 we know there's a humongous earthquake that levels Colossae to a point where it's never going to really exist as a going concern again uh, so Paul's writing around this time, he's in prison he writes uh, encouraging Christians to remain rooted in Christ to not be seduced by earthly philosophy asceticism, any Judaizing or proto-Nazism, there's a lot going on in Colossae he writes to Philemon on behalf of the slave Onesimus, pleading for his life. Such a powerful letter, because Paul says he could just use his authority as an apostle, but instead appeals to Philemon on, on much more gracious grounds. But always keeping that ability to hit with a stick and behind him, uh, graciously asking for Philemon to receive Onesimus as something greater than what was before. Maybe runaway slave, but now a brother in Christ. Really great rhetorical job there to try to... Uh, make Philemon an offer he can't refuse. In chapters 27 and 28, we see the trip to Rome. And he was in Rome for about 60 to 62 or so. It's a winter storm that they get stuck in when they're on that boat. And the ship is compromised. They end up wrecking on the island we call Malta. Then Aeus thought he was a god because he endured a snake bite and was unhurt. He ends up healing the father of Publius, the chief man of the island, and he's sent off well. He ends up in Rome, and we're told at the end of Acts he... Uh, spends two years in his higher dwelling there, and he proclaims the gospel there. And that's the height of the, the, the ultimate end of the message there. The, the, the message has now reached Rome. Paul has preached the gospel in Rome and testified to Jesus in the heart of the Roman power. While he's in Rome, he no doubt writes Ephesians, which is a treatise of the church in the life of a Christian. A lot of parallels to the Colossians. Uh, Ephesians very likely is an encyclical, a letter that would have gone to the church in Ephesus, but other churches as well. Uh, and he wrote it in prison. Uh, Philippians we know is written while in Rome because he talks about Caesar's household. It's a letter to encourage the Philippians. It's sent with Epaphroditus who had been ill but had recovered. Uh, he exhorts them to live as citizens of the kingdom to build one another up. Now Luke's narrative ends there. Um, but later tradition suggests... Uh, that there are other trips that Paul takes. First uh, Clement 5.5, 5, Clement says that Paul did make it to Spain, as he had hoped to in Romans 15.24 and 28. We have First, Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul is writing letters to evangelists that he worked closely with, Timothy and Titus. Uh, at some point, Paul leaves Timothy and Titus, Timothy and Ephesus, excuse me, and Titus in Crete to set churches in order and to have established elders and deacons to 
uh, talk about other forms of church organization, to, to deal, deal things that need exhortation, and to warn about false teachers. Um, most believe these were written after the first Roman imprisonment. Maybe Second Timothy is during the second Roman imprisonment, but in this time period between 62 to 67. And it's clear from these letters that Paul has been doing more traveling. First um, Timothy, Paul says, I left you at Ephesus. And so, and Paul left Timothy and Titus in Crete. So he's been to Ephesus. He's been to, to Macedonia. He's been to Crete. In, in Tro, 2 Timothy 4.13, he's left things in Troas. He was in Miletus. He left someone sick in 2 Timothy 4.20. And he wants uh, Titus to come to him while he winters in Nicopolis in Titus 3 and verse 12. Nevertheless, by 2 Timothy 1.17, he is in Rome. Again, and we have those powerful haunting words. It's not the very last words that he writes, but we certainly understand. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul wants Timothy to bring Mark with him and come to Rome. Mark has proven his worth in ministry. And he wants Timothy to make every haste to make before winter. And according to tradition, Paul will soon be beheaded in Rome by the order of Nero. Ignatius of Antioch says this in the letter to Ephesians. Uh, the Acts of Paul apocryphal work says this. Tertullian in his prescription against heretics, 36, Eusebius, Ecclesiastical History, chapter 2. Book 2, chapter 25, says the same. And this is what we learn about Saul of Tarsus and Paul from the New Testament, and some from tradition, although there's a whole lot of tradition that builds up around Paul as one of the founders of the church in Rome, and of all kinds of other acts and other things that go on. Uh, but for the, our purposes and, and the fact that there's so much more talk about in terms of Paul, we're going to set aside all the various traditions that arose around him. Because there's so much that we've been told about Paul, and we've summarized it, and there's still so much detail to go through. But it's worth looking at him, his exploits, and his teachings, and to see his main contributions and what we're to understand from them. And by far, the most predominant issue of Paul's day involved the Jewish-Christian response to the conversion of the Gentiles. Now, yes... Peter is the first one to preach to some Gentiles. He's the one who receives a vision, goes to preach to Cornelius, uh, sees God pour out the Holy Spirit on Cornelius. He testifies at every opportunity that this is how God has included the Gentiles. He does that in chapter 11. He does that in chapter 15. So Peter is absolutely a strong witness here. And it seems in Acts 11.18, they say, well, then God has granted the Gentiles... Uh, repentance that leads to life. We'd like to think that that was a wonderful thing in the eyes of the Jews, but it's certainly clear that at least some of them, especially among those who had converted from the Pharisees, it was something that they accepted, if at all, begrudgingly. But old habits die hard. Uh, and we have to keep in mind, it's not that Jewish people were thinking it was an awful thing for Gentiles to want to follow the God of Israel. They just expected that it would follow the covenant that they read the prophets and expected the prophets to be fulfilled as if the Gentiles were to become Jews to follow God. And here, Paul, Peter and Paul are saying, no, they can stay Gentile, they can stay uncircumcised, they can eat bacon, they can uh, work on Saturday, and they can still be Christians. And that was too much 
for many of these Pharisaic Jewish Christians who had come down from Jerusalem. We call them the Judaizers, and that's in quotation, because we don't know much about them. We believe they're from Jerusalem because that's the center and the heart of this kind of belief. Uh, based in Acts 21 and the great zeal they had for the customs of Moses, it wouldn't be at all surprising that you have some radicals coming out of there. In Acts 15, the letter is very clear to say that such people are not sent by James and others, but yet still they are members of the church in Jerusalem. If you've been part of a church for any amount of time, you are aware that there are always some people who may have views that are not within the mainstream or the accepted views of others. And so it is the Judaizers. They, they wreak havoc. And you can almost see the wave as it goes from Jerusalem to Antioch to the churches in Galatia uh, to Corinth and even threatening Rome. Uh, at least it's this maybe the second wave uh, around the year 53 to 55 of this happening that leads to Paul having to write Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. And they're not only just saying they need to follow Moses and be saved, uh, they're, they're casting aspersions on Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. Uh, from uh, what we see in Galatians 1, it's clear that they are trying to say Paul... Uh, just heard about the gospel, that he wasn't actually getting it by revelation, and that he was not in association with the other apostles, and that they claim that since they have lineage and they have basis in Judaism, that therefore they have standing as some kind of quote-unquote super-apostle. Uh, and Paul answers these arguments and challenges masterfully. The main argument, the main issue, we see fully fleshed out in Romans chapters 1 through 8 especially, and polemically in Galatians, primarily chapter 3 and 4, is justification by faith. That we that no one is not saved because of what they have done, but because through faith in God and Christ. Uh, that Abraham was justified by faith, and he was justified before circumcision. And that circumcision, the law, was added to the promise. It did not precede the promise. That Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham through which all the nations will be blessed. And that in Christ, all who trust in God are sons of Abraham. That Christ is taking on the curse of the law for us. That the law is, in fact, a tutor to lead us to Christ. That it was not able to really justify that it led to and pointed to Christ. This is not a denial of obedience. Uh, we should not retroject 16th or 19th century arguments onto a 1st century text. He's pointing out that you do not have standing before God because you are a descendant of Abraham and you say you follow the law because you haven't followed the law fully. Your standing must be by trust. That trust is not unique to Israel. It was not unique to circumcision and the law. And Paul's pointing out how God was able to bring them into the fold. And to the Galatians, he vigorously defends his apostleship and ministry by recounting his conversion, his association with the apostles in Jerusalem, that he received the gospel of revelation and not from men. And to the Corinthians, he commended himself in quite a different way. As opposed to boasting in his greatness, he boasts in his weakness. And he points that out in that way, the ludicrousness of the standing of his opponents, all the things that he has suffered. And it's a litany worthy of consideration. We think about all the things that he went through. He lists them out in Second Corinthians chapter 11. And he, especially beginning 
in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So he boasts in his weaknesses to point out the ludicrousness of boasting in all these other things. And in terms of this argument, Paul ends up being completely successful, overwhelmingly successful, and also events help to conspire to, to do that. Uh, a few years after Paul's death, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. The power center that animated uh, that emphasis of the Judaizers in Christianity completely fell apart. Within a few generations, the church was mostly Gentile and could take for granted Paul's arguments that Gentiles were to be accepted fully and in, grafted into the olive tree. And that's, in fact, the problem. Paul's arguments were so successful that so much of the arguments that have been held since about what he meant by justification by faith have just assumed the legitimacy of what he's originally arguing and therefore presume he's arguing for something else that he's not intending at all. That's why it's important to realize that it's a much bigger danger and threat. You have to understand this as a Pharisaic Jewish Christian arguing with other Pharisaic Jewish Christians about how God has accepted the Gentiles. And that helps us understand what Paul's attempting to do here. Now, Paul was ready to withstand the Judaizers. He spent his whole life training as a Jewish person understanding the Jewish scriptures, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, how much was he trained for Greek philosophy and dealing with those issues? We're not as well aware. But in his preaching and teaching, we know he confronted it. He addressed, he spoke with Epicureans and Stoics about Jesus and the resurrection in Acts 17. In fact, he quotes Aratus and Epimenides of Crete, in him we live and move have our being, uh, that we are indeed his offspring in Acts 17. Um, and those in the original text talk about Zeus, and so he had no problem appropriating that idea where the Jew, the, it, the Greeks were heading toward the idea of a singularity in the in, in God, uh, and pointing out the, the connections with, with the one true God. Whereas he can find common cause there, on the whole, philosophy is an opponent. In Colossians 2, 1-10, Paul emphasized that Colossians, you need to be rooted in Christ, and not to be deceived by the vain earthly philosophies. In 1 Timothy 6, 20-21, he warns Timothy about the profane babblings and opposition of knowledge, gnosis, falsely so-called. So he finds himself at the center of this whole controversy about the Jewish issues. But he's seeing the beginning, which is going to be the next phase of the big controversies confronting uh, the Lord's people, and that is the compromise of the Greek philosophy seen primarily in the Gnostics. And that's why he warns Timothy about uh, those who will give heed to doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4, 1-4, those who forbid marriage and uh, the eating of certain foods that we can eat with thankfulness. He uh, let's talk about the opposition of Hymenaeus and Philetus, the uh, talk of gangrene, uh, who say that the resurrection is already passed in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18. And it will be left for later Christians, including the Apostle John, to reckon with the full force of these challenges. 
but Paul grounds these people later, not just John, but uh, Justin Martyr, particularly Clement Alexander, especially Irenaeus and Tertullian and later uh, individuals, uh, showing them the way forward that the Gentiles in 1 Corinthians 1 are going to find the gospel to be folly. He understood that from the uh, experience he had in, in Areopagus. This is why Tertullian can say, what hath Jerusalem with Athens? Um, and establishing the dangers of this Gnostic belief system. And so that's Paul the polemicist, the, one, the opponents he's arguing with and the arguments he has to have. And he's masterful at his arguments in dealing with his opposition. But so much of what's important about Paul is that he's a, is a theologian of a great rank. And again, so successful that we barely think about it. He's not like the rest of the apostles. He is from the highly educated religious elite. And his background prepared him for polemic work, but he does a lot of important theological work in making sense of how God fulfilled his promises in Jesus. He draws connections and connects the dots in ways that have profoundly shaped everything that's come since, but may not have been immediately obvious until Jesus came. Uh, first of all, it's important to understand something about Paul. We talk about his conversion when he went from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. But, as we saw in Acts 26, 6 through 8, and 22 through 23, I don't know necessarily the way that he'd see that. He doesn't necessarily see himself as having become a completely different person. He doesn't even necessarily see himself as radically changing his beliefs. Instead, as he points out, that... He stands on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He says he was convinced to do evil things. He saw the Lord in the resurrection, and that convinced him that actually Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope that he had. That instead of finding, he finds consummation in Jesus more than conversion. Everything he had hoped for actually has taken place in Jesus. And so he doesn't abandon his Jewish heritage. Yes, he will say things like he considers everything that came before him rubbish or garbage so he can obtain the resurrection of Christ. But don't kid yourself. That's an important rhetorical strategy. It's important to understand his his emphasis and, and mentality of being willing to lose his standing as a Jew, Pharisee of Pharisees, a, a Benjaminite Jew in order to obtain the resurrection, but he's still a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Benjaminite Jew in the way that he thinks and puts things together and interacts with the scriptures. We see this throughout. And it's important, and that's why he's called, because he is that person who can do these things. And in fact, the whole his idea of fulfillment is going to support, undergird all of his argumentation about justification by faith against the Judaizers. It is precisely because he is an Israelite who does trust in the promises of Abraham, but has seen the end of the law and what it leads to versus what we have in Christ. Very important things he understands about the resurrection, because Jesus' resurrection opens up some legitimate questions. Wasn't the resurrection going to happen the final day? Daniel 12, the final day, you'll have people rising to everlasting life or everlasting uh, condemnation. How can one be raised before the rest? I've already seen it sometimes in Acts, but he really points this out in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-58. The idea that Jesus is the first fruit of the dead. That 
this allows us to understand how Jesus could come first and then everybody else later. There's the first fruits. It's the first of the crop, and then later it's the promise if you get the first of the crop and give it to God, then you will get the later crops. And so this is God sending a promise that as Jesus is raised from the dead, we will have our resurrection as well. And that's also something he sees in Romans 1 4, that Jesus is declared the Son of God in the resurrection. That today you are my today I, the decree is made in Psalm 2, you are my son today, I have begotten you. The idea of beginning Jesus today is in the resurrection, according to Paul. That's at least one way of understanding Jesus' fulfillment of that passage. Not that Paul is denying that Jesus was not was the Son of God beforehand. But that's an important way of connecting the dots there. In Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul works through another pressing issue that's very legitimate. Is God somehow unfaithful to himself if he casts off physical Israel to whom he has made promises and called to himself and incorporates Gentiles into the fold? And Paul points out that throughout the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, God has worked through a remnant. Only a remnant's been saved at, at any given moment. And not all the descendants of Abraham received the promise. The sons of Ishmael, the sons of Esau did not receive the promise. And after all, God is sovereign. Who's the creator? Creation acts answer back to the creator about these things. And he works out from the Old Testament a plan for his ministry. The Jews have become hard of heart and disqualify themselves. The Gentiles receive the bounty in turn, and hopefully the Jews will be moved by jealousy, uh, seeing the Gentiles enjoying the blessing of God and will come back to serve God. In fact, it's a, it's a resurrection in itself. The Jews have been cast off and cut off because of their disbelief, but they'll have a resurrection of sorts by coming back to God in Jesus in Romans 11, 7 through 33. We're waiting to see that happen. It may happen at some point, um, but that has yet to happen. Throughout his writings and preaching, Paul is a careful expositor of Scripture, and he understands that Jesus is the hope of Israel, the fulfillment of all the hope that Israel had, and recognizes much as part of the new covenant, but affirms the prophetic hope and promise of the old, that Jesus has embodied all that God was trying to do through Israel and fulfills that so that the next phase can begin. In terms of his life and work, we understand Paul primarily in two ways. The first way, and most prominent way, is as he wrote in Romans 1-1, Galatians 1-1, Paul called to be an apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God in Christ so that the Gentiles would hear the gospel and be saved. In Acts 26, this is part of Jesus' speech to him from uh, while on the road to Damascus. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that is why Paul insists on being a witness of the resurrection and having received the gospel of Jesus by revelation in Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians 9, and 15, even though it's under extraordinary circumstances. And it's because it's primarily as an apostle that he writes to the churches, whether he's providing instruction in questions they have, or if they have disputes or arguments, uh, ex when he exhorts them to faithfulness, when he commends their righteousness, and when he rebukes when there is immorality and transgression. He didn't want to have to bring out the stick, but when he had to, he would. 
and he defended his privilege as an apostle and to be spayed for his work in 1 Corinthians 9, 1-15, and in 2 Corinthians 10-13, when the Corinthians no longer listen to anything else, he said he would bring down the hammer on them, uh, and in Galatians 1 and 2, vigorously defended his apostleship and the reason that he had standing to preach the gospel. He doesn't want to exercise it, like we see in Philemon, he wants to appeal. But he has no problem doing that. And he did not consider himself any less of an apostle than the twelve, or those who had prominence, as he makes clear in Galatians 2. Uh, those are PV pillars added nothing to him. John, Peter, James, the Lord's brother, and John. So Paul most surely has the authority, through the revelation that Jesus gave him, to speak on matters of faith and practice. And he used that authority to encourage the churches that he association to be faithful to God. The other way that we see Paul is in primary as an evangelist. That in this commission, he sent as an apostle, but he sent as an apostle to preach to the nations. And he's really a model evangelist in many ways. And, and we see this primarily in, in a very famous passage of his, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not my being myself under the law, that I might be win those under the law. Uh, to those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in his blessings. And we see this throughout. In Acts 13, he preaches to the Jews a message saturated with the promise and the scriptures of the Old Testament. In Acts 17, allusions to the Old Testament are aplenty, but no citations, but he does quote Greek philosophers. He's using different approaches to read different people with the same message. But he doesn't compromise the message. He doesn't compromise his morals or ethics. He lives in good conscience in Acts 23 and verse 1. But instead of what he's doing is he's manifesting this humble heart of a servant, finding a way to proclaim Christ. We see that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that even though the Jews have caused him innumerable sufferings, more than anybody else, he still has heart for them. He would rather it be that he would be condemned if they would all be saved. And he hoped that by his ministry to the Gentiles, he'd be provoked to jealousy to return back to God. And even when he approaches the churches as an apostle, it's not merely as an apostle, but primarily as a founding evangelist, because except for the Romans and Colossians, he had preached to them to begin with. They had heard the gospel from him to begin with. And he had deep affection and love for them. As he said, he has a pressing anxiety of the churches in Second Corinthians 11. And it's not just that he himself thought important to preach. He also took thought to preparing others to teach and preach. It is true and important to note that apostolic authority was not transferred. Uh, it, it left with the twelve, Barnabas and, and, and Paul. Uh, you see early Christians after them cite them heavily and rely on them heavily, but not considering their own statements to be of the same uh, value. You think about all the people that Paul trained. You can make a long list. No less than Timothy, and Titus, Epaphras, John Mark. You could add many others to this list. And we can see in First and Second Timothy Titus his 
concern for effective ministry and evangelism, to proclaim the gospel to those outside, and also to encourage those within to stand firm in the faith, to resist false doctrine, to live in the light of Jesus crucified and raised, and to maintain appropriate conduct, maintain some appropriate conduct and organization of the local church. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's really Paul's purpose at the end. He did that with Timothy. Timothy heard the gospel from him. Heard what he had revealed in Christ. And now it's Timothy's turn to go and tell other men who can tell other men who can tell other men who can tell other men that there will be a faithful chain of the proclamation of the gospel that is to come to this very day. And all of this is done, all this love and care and concern is done, despite the fact that from beginning to end he experienced extremely vitriolic and painful persecution for preaching the gospel and would ultimately lead to being beheaded in Rome. This is Saul of Tarsus, one who began as a strong opponent of the way, but who saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, became the apostle and evangelist of the Gentiles, and we do well to consider his example. That he may be humble in appearance, but he was powerful in his writings. He experienced great trials and suffering. He resisted false teaching from every quarter. But he maintained great love and care for fellow Christians, those that he preached the gospel to. He worked diligently with younger evangelists so that the word would be proclaimed. And thus may we strive to obtain the resurrection, as Paul did, to promote the gospel of Christ to the glory of God. We're again very thankful that you've spent this time with us. Again, with Paul, it's always a long journey. There's so much about him, and we hope that you've been benefited by this exploration of his life and work. If you have any questions or comments about anything we've discussed, if you'd like to talk about these things in more depth, maybe you have some questions, maybe you have some pushback, maybe you want to learn more about how to follow the Lord Jesus. If there's any way we can be of encouragement to you, if you need a prayer request, just need to talk, let me know. Contact me at our website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Venture to Christ, you can find out more about us at VentureToChrist.org, and we're also on many prominent forms of social media. We again thank you, and we hope that you have a great and blessed day.